Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is from Marxist University, a series of discussions held in the fall of 2020 to introduce people to the most fundamental and pressing Marxist ideas. Canadian capitalism was founded and built on the brutal exploitation and colonization of Indigenous peoples. A study of this history also clearly shows that the continued oppression and suffering of Indigenous peoples today is inherently linked to the capitalist system and points the way forward for emancipation through the fight for the socialist transformation of society. In this episode, Fightback editor Rob Lyon discusses the Indigenous struggle and Marxism. Um, yes, so as, as Holly mentioned, uh, the oppression of Indigenous peoples is a, is a defining feature of Canadian capitalism. And for many people, there's a, there's a real disconnect, a real ignorance about the, the shameful history of the subjugation of Indigenous peoples through the schools, the state, an entire narrative of cooperation between the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples has been constructed. The, the ruling class, or, or at least its liberal wing, have also tried to reinforce this narrative with all this talk about, about reconciliation. And uh, around five years ago, at the time of the Ferguson crisis in the United States, around the shooting of, uh, of Michael Brown, Maclean's magazine published an article entitled, uh, Canada's Race Problem, It's Even Worse Than America's. And many, many people in Canada and around the world have this, this, this view that while the United States has a, a violent and explosive racism, Canada is a land of kind of progressive tolerance. And this McLean's article was comparing the race problem in the U.S. in relation to, to blacks with the race, race problem in Canada in relation to indigenous peoples. And the article showed, and I quote, by almost every measurable indicator, indigenous people in Canada suffer a worse fate and more hardship than the African-American population in the United States. These measurable indicators included the following, the unemployment rate, income, incarceration rates, homicide rates, infant mortality, life expectancy, and high school dropout rates. Not, I don't raise this to downplay the oppression of Blacks in the United States. Black and Indigenous people suffer horrible racism and oppression across North America. But I am raising it to show just how serious the problem is in Canada. And we see the horrifying impact of this systemic racism every single day. Recently, we saw the death of Joyce Echequan, who suffered racist taunts and abuse as she was dying as a result of medical malpractice at a hospital in Quebec. And this sparked a, a fairly widespread debate about systemic racism in, in, in Quebec and Canada. Canada routinely finds itself in the top 10 nations of the United Nations Human Development Index. You know, how many times have you heard people say, you know, that, oh, Canada is the best or one of the best countries in the world to live in? And this idea is also often used as an argument as to why we don't need socialism in Canada, too. Now, of course, there is a certain standing, standard of living here, but things are far from rosy, I think, as we all know. The reality of the situation is that for many Indigenous people, Canada is certainly not the best country in the world to live in, and it never has been. If one were to apply the UN Index to Indigenous people alone, Canada's position would be significantly lower. Now, the index rankings, they change every year because the results are all relative to one another. But if applied to Indigenous people alone, Canada would rank somewhere around 75 to 80 on the list. So this is somewhere around where countries like Albania or Kazakhstan rank. 
Canada has the third largest supply of fresh water in the world, but according to Indigenous services, there are currently 61 Indigenous communities with long-term drinking water advisories in effect, and there are currently an additional 20 short-term drinking water advisories in place. The Trudeau government has long promised that it would end all drinking water advisories by March 2021, and the federal government is now, almost predictably, backing away from that promise. Now Trudeau is saying the advisories will be lifted as soon as possible, which basically means never, or at least not anytime soon. Trudeau made these comments in the midst of a water crisis in the Neskantaga First Nation. The water system there recently had to be shut down and some 200 residents were evacuated to Thunder Bay. Neskantaga First Nation has been under a water advisory since 1995. That's the longest standing water advisory in Canada. That's 25 years. In 25 years, and you can't repair or build a new water system in the 20th and the 21st centuries in Canada. It's shocking. Chris Munius, the chief there, explained that he has never had access to clean drinking water and he's 50 years of age. It's an utterly scandalous situation and it totally destroys the idea that Canada is the best place to live in the world. A while ago, I read an article that argued that all the money spent on police actions against the wet sweat and people alone could cover the cost of repairing all the water systems on reserves across the entire country. And at the end of the day, it wouldn't cost very much or take very long to solve all these problems with water systems on reserves. But it simply isn't done because there is no will to do so on the part of politicians and the ruling class. The poverty rates on reserves are shocking. 60% of children on reserve live in poverty. But these rates are as high as 69% in Saskatchewan and 76% in Manitoba. 80% of reserves have a median income below the poverty line. There's a massive housing crisis on reserves with a, with a major shortage of housing. The Assembly of First Nations estimates a, a shortage of 85,000 units countrywide. And on top of this, over 40% of homes on reserve are in need of major repairs. There's also an education crisis. 47% of reserves currently require, a new, require new school buildings and 74% of existing schools need major repairs. Only 46% of First Nations schools have a fully equipped gym. Only 30% have, have, have a fully equipped playground. Only 52% have a fully equipped kitchen and only 18% are, have a fully equipped science lab. Only 39% of First Nations schools have a fully equipped library. Only 48% uh, have, equipped, have a fully equipped technology like computers and computer labs. And only 67% report good internet connectivity. The incarceration rates for Indigenous people are so shocking, I find myself constantly checking and rechecking them to make sure that I'm actually seeing the numbers correctly. Indigenous people make up about 4 to 5% of Canada's population, but make up 29% of the inmate population in federal institutions. If we look at provincial institutions, this rises to just over 30%. This is an incarceration rate 10 times higher than for the non-Indigenous population in Canada. In Manitoba, Indigenous adults make up 74% of admissions to jails, and in Saskatchewan, it's 76%. Indigenous people only make up 15% of the population in these provinces. For Indigenous youth in these provinces, the numbers are utterly astounding. The numbers are really high in Alberta and Manitoba too, but in Saskatchewan, 92% of incarcerated male youth are Indigenous. 98% of female incarcerated youth are Indigenous. Indigenous women also face a particular crisis. Indigenous women, Indigenous women are the poorest section of Canadian society with an average income of only around $13,000, which is well below the poverty line. 
This crushing poverty has led directly to the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women as it puts them in an utterly vulnerable position. And given these conditions, it is not surprising then that there is also a suicide epidemic in First Nations communities. Suicide is the leading cause of death for First Nations youth and adults up to 44 years of age. The overall suicide rate for the Indigenous population is double that of the total Canadian rate. <clears throat> for Indigenous youth, the suicide rate is five to six times higher than for, for, for non-Indigenous youth. So we have to ask ourselves, how did this all come about? In order to understand the oppression and subjugation of Indigenous people, we need to have a look at the development of Canadian capitalism, which was founded and built on the subjugation of Indigenous peoples. Now, I can't spend too much time on the history uh, of Indigenous peoples or the history of Canada, but we should probably touch on at least a couple of things that are relevant to the struggles taking place today. Uh, at a certain point, the British eventually became the dominant colonial force in North America. And the British Crown issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763 after the Seven Years' War, which formally claimed territory in North America for the British Crown and effectively gave the British state a monopoly over the land. Now, the proclamation is important for a couple of reasons. The first is that the Crown had to negotiate and sign treaties with Indigenous peoples before the land could be ceded. And two, this was also uh, an explicit recognition that all lands were Indigenous until ceded. And this is an important legal precedent for Aboriginal title and land claims to this day. But we have to be clear, the proclamation was not issued with the intention of guaranteeing or protecting Indigenous rights or land title. The proclamation was designed to restrict the power of the colonies and guarantee the monopoly of the land for the British Crown. Settlers could not claim land on their own, although many did end up squatting the land. Uh, the land can only be officially claimed through the Crown. And naturally, the British Crown took every opportunity to swindle Indigenous people out of their lands. The Crown eventually came to rely on Hudson's Bay Company to colonize Western Canada. HBC was granted around one-third of Canada's total land, with no consultation or treaty signed with Indigenous people. HBC also had a monopoly on the fur trade, eventually, and the profits from the trade helped in the development of the Industrial Revolution in Britain and was instrumental in the, in the development of the big bourgeoisie in Canada. And a large part of this was based on the ruthless exploitation of Indigenous fur traders. Prior to Confederation, HBC had an interest in keeping Indigenous people nomadic and working in the fur trade, but this changed after Confederation. The disappearance of fur-bearing animals and the development of industry brought the fur trade to an end. The young Canadian bourgeoisie now needed a home market and needed raw materials, minerals, timber, and farmland. Treaties were established to clear land for capitalist development and settlement. The government now moved to destroy Indigenous traditional governance and communal property. And from the perspective of historical materialism, this is because of the mode of production and corresponding family forms and property relations in Indigenous communities were fundamentally incompatible with the development of capitalism. This was expressed clearly by the Indian Commissioner in 1873 when he said that there are two modes wherein the government may treat the Indian nations who inhabit this territory. Treaties may be made with them simply with a view to their extinct Treaties may be made with them simply to, with a view to the extinction of their rights by agreeing to pay them a sum and afterwards abandon them to themselves. On the other side, they may be instructed, civilized, and led to a mode of life more in conformity with the new position of this country. Now, at a certain point, Indigenous peoples were forced into a situation where they had to sign these treaties. And this was due to enormous pressure from the death toll from disease, the disappearance of traditional fur-bearing animals, and the threat of massacre, which was very real at the time. The legacy of European colonization is absolutely horrific. 
It is estimated that between 1492 and 1900, there were approximately 175 million excess Indigenous deaths in the Americas, with a 95% reduction in population during that period. <clears throat> One historian has called this mass, mass death of Indigenous peoples the worst human holocaust that the world has ever witnessed. This is another aspect of what Marx was referring to when he said that capital comes into the world dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. By the time of Confederation, all the basic features of Canadian bourgeois policy towards Indigenous peoples were in place. And this eventually led to the passing of the Indian Act in 1876. The Indian Act gave the Canadian states sweeping powers over all aspects of the lives of First Nations peoples. It replaced traditional government, allowed for the relocation of reserve lands, established criteria for Indian status, and banned numerous spiritual and cultural practices. The Indian Act also imposed the band council system and the reserve and residential school systems were also implemented under the Act. Indigenous people were forbidden from speaking their languages, banned from wearing traditional dress, and the potlatch and sundance were also, were also banned. The Act also forbade the formation of political organizations and denied Indigenous people the right to vote. Until 1960, First Nations could only vote in federal elections if they renounced their status. First Nations were also not allowed to raise funds for legal claims, and until 1951, were not allowed to hire a lawyer without government permission. Until 1940, First Nations could not leave reserve lands without a pass under the pass system designed to control their movements. This entire system created under the Indian Act largely destroyed the Indigenous way of life. Now, there was resistance, for example, at Frog Lake in Alberta, where the government failed to meet its obligations under Treaty 6. People were starving with the disappearance of the buffalo, and the government was withholding provisions it was supposed to guarantee under the treaty. Eventually, the Indian agent on the reserve was taken hostage, and there was an uprising, uh, which did, in fact, eventually play a role in the Northwest Rebellion led by uh, Louis Riel. Uh, Britain and, and eventually Canada were not really in a position to militarily commit genocide against Indigenous peoples, but their economic and political policies effectively amounted to the same thing. There is evidence that John A. Macdonald and others enacted policies specifically designed to starve people on reserves. The residential school system was set up as a means of cultural genocide. This was the inescapable conclusion of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example. From the 1870s until 1996, at least 150,000 First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children were forced into this residential school system. At least 3,200 children died in these schools where sexual and physical abuse were rampant but the true number of deaths will never be known as many records were destroyed. The Truth, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up to address the crimes of this history. It called on Canadian governments at all levels to adopt the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP. UNDRIP recognizes the rights of Indigenous peoples to self-determination, autonomy, and self-government, and emphasizes the concept of free, prior, and informed consent for activity on Indigenous territory. Because of this, UNDRIP understandably has received considerable support amongst uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada and around the world. But UNDRIP has its problems. The UN isn't exactly a revolutionary organization, but the biggest problem, and this is very clear now that UNDRIP has been formally adopted as law by the BC government, is that it can never really be implemented under capitalism. The Harper government was always openly hostile to UNDRIP, arguing that it could lead to a flood of land claims and that it could be seen as granting Indigenous people the power to veto resource extraction projects, something the ruling class cannot stomach because it threatens their class rule over the nation. The Liberals under Justin Trudeau initially adopted a different approach, at least superficially in words. 
Trudeau has talked a lot about nation-to-nation relations and reconciliation and so on. But what his government has actually done is continue with the same colonial approach the Canadian state has always taken. In 2016, the Trudeau Liberals formally dropped the Canadian government's objector status to UNDRIP. It was even announced that the Liberal government would adopt UNDRIP and implement it in accordance with with the Canadian Constitution. But less than two months later, then Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould informed the Assembly of First Nations that UNDRIP could not be adopted as federal law because it contradicted the Indian Act. Now, prior to coming to power, Trudeau indicated that his government would accept uh, the UNDRIP requirements of free prior and informed consent from Indigenous peoples before certain projects could be approved, such as pipelines and so on. At one point, he even said that a no from an Indigenous community with regard to a pipeline would result in the cancellation of the project. That's all changed now, of course. The Canadian ruling class, especially those in the resource extraction sector, would not stand for such a policy. With limited access to infrastructure in the United States and the imposition of discounted prices on Canadian oil, the oil barons in Canada are desperate to develop their own infrastructure in the form of pipelines, processing facilities, and so on. The actual adoption of UNDRIP by the federal government could potentially threaten the ability of the ruling class to determine and control resource extraction and pipeline construction, which is why the ruling class is totally opposed to UNDRIP, and this also explains why the federal government has backtracked on it. This is also why Trudeau later clarified that Ottawa does not recognize the right of First Nations to unilaterally block projects, saying that no Indigenous people will not have a veto. By characterizing the free prior and informed consent of Indigenous peoples with regard to resource extraction as a veto, the ruling class and its political representatives are telling Indigenous people that despite whatever lip service is paid to UNDRIP, Indigenous peoples will have no say in the economic economic activity that takes place on their lands. The provincial and federal governments and the corporations will have the final say, enforced by the RCMP if necessary, and we've seen this many, many times. From the point of view of the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class and their state must have control over resource extraction and must be able to protect investment and profits. Economic mastery over the nation and the control of economic resources by the capitalist class is, after all, one of the main elements of capitalist society and one of the key pillars in the rule of the bourgeoisie. One way or another, and we see this clearly in British Columbia in relation to the wet sweatin', The ruling class will never allow the question of Indigenous rights and title to threaten resource extraction projects or any other projects of major economic and or political importance. Bourgeois law will always be used to protect the interests of the capitalists and will always be used against the rights of Indigenous peoples. Again, we've seen this many, many times. You You cannot plan what you do not control and you cannot control what you do not own. As long as the ownership of the means of production remains private and in the hands of the capitalist class, production and energy extraction will continue at the expense of the environment and society, as well as Indigenous rights, in order to protect the profits of the few. The attacks on wet sweat and lands earlier this year and last year show what the ruling class and the state consider the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples to be. The hereditary chiefs of the wet sweat and were opposed to the construction of the pipeline through their traditional lands, and in fact, they banned it. Despite this, however, the oil corporations, the states, and the right wing in Alberta, for example, argued that they did, in fact, have the consent of Indigenous peoples to build the pipeline. They claim this because agreements have been signed with all the elected First Nations band councils along the pipeline route. This was the position of BC Premier um, John Horgan. 
despite his government's adoption of UNDRIP as law, he argued that the rule of law demanded that the coastal gas link pipeline go ahead. This was because the permits were in place and the courts had already approved construction. Oregon didn't care at all about the opposition of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, who under Canadian law and the Indian Act have no legal standing. He simply parroted the arguments of the corporations on the right wing and pointed to the agreements with the 21st Nation band councils that had signed agreements to allow the pipeline. The five Wet'suwet'en clans who were opposed didn't count. The Coastal Gaslink Pipeline is the largest private investment project in Canadian history. The ruling class in their state will never allow the question of Indigenous rights to threaten this project. These agreements with the band councils have nothing to do with the situation and in fact mean very little because the band councils do not have jurisdiction outside the reserve areas. The band councils are colonial institutions imposed by the Indian Act and only have jurisdiction over reserve lands, which are actually quite small and well-defined areas. We saw a similar thing around the Trans, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. A coalition of 10 Indigenous groups challenged the pipeline approval because they wanted it moved, uh, moved away from an aquifer. They weren't opposed to the pipeline itself, they just wanted it moved somewhere safer. They argued that the government's refusal to move the pipeline showed that the federal government had consulted the, consulted the Indigenous groups in bad faith. The federal, the federal Court of Appeal simply dismissed, dismissed the case, claiming that the government had sufficiently consulted the Indigenous groups. So legally speaking, it seems that pretending to listen and then ignoring Indigenous groups is considered consultation. In terms of the Wet'suwet'en situation, we have to ask, who are the genuine representatives of, of, of these Indigenous groups? Is it the, the hereditary chiefs or the elected band councils? And there can be an impression that it's a choice between a supposedly hereditary monarchy and, you know, modern democratic institutions. But this isn't really the reality on the ground. For example, among the Wet'suwet'en, the person selected to be the hereditary chief, a person selected based on their role in the community and who may or may not be related to the previous holder of the position, adopts the hereditary name associated with the position. So it's not really like a hereditary monarchy at all. The Canadian state forcibly broke up the, the traditional forms of governance, the potlatch, the longhouses, the clan mothers, and so on, and imposed elected band councils as adjuncts to the Indian agents on reserve. The traditional forms of governments were often far closer to the people and reflected their wishes from the bottom up better than the alien system of band councils imposed from the top down. There's often a class divide where a minority of wealth members, uh, where a minority of wealthy members of a First Nation have a monopoly of power on the band council while the majority of members live in poor conditions. It is this wealthy layer that the oil and mining corporations rely on. It is actually kind of better to think of these forms of governments, governance as traditional versus band council rather than hereditary versus elected. But it's clear that we understand that there isn't a one size fits all rule. The bottom line is that it is up to Indigenous people to determine how they govern themselves. In some instances, the traditional forms of governance have been totally eradicated and no longer exist. In other instances, elected band councils have reflected the desire of the struggle, uh, the, the desire to struggle from the bottom up. We have to take each nation in its particularity while understanding that there is also a class divide within Indigenous communities. This approach allows us to understand disputes such as that involving the Wet'suwet'en and to cut through the propaganda of the corporations in the state. The Wet'suwet'en traditional chiefs argue that the agreements signed by the band councils have no validity on unceded traditional territories outside the reserves. In fact, the coastal gas link pipeline is not passing through the reserve lands where the band councils have jurisdiction, but is passing through traditional territory where the hereditary chiefs claim jurisdiction, uh, which is, is of course not recognized. 
There's another recent example in Ontario that shows this potential conflict between traditional government governance and the elected band councils. If we take the situation with the, the Haudenosaunee near Catalo uh, Catalonia, near Caledonia, Ontario, uh, members of the six, na six nations of the Grand River set up a reclamation camp, the 1492 land back lane in July, to stop the construction of a housing development by Foxgate on stolen land. The Six Nations members of the reclamation camp have historical records showing that the land the development sits on was sold by a squatter to a settler who then received a land patent from the colonial authorities in 1853. Basically, this land was not sold legally, it was stolen. The property uh, is, part of the, is also part of the Haldeman Tract granted to Six Nations of the Grand River in 1784 for allying with the British during the American Revolution. The granted land encompassed about 10 kilometers on, on both sides of the Grand River, stretching 280 kilometers through southern Ontario and into the Lake Erie, uh, Lake Erie region. The Six Nations now have less than 5% of its original lands. In addition, the land is covered under the 1701 Nanfan Treaty between the British and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. The Nanfan Treaty granted the Haudenosaunee the right to harvest, hunt, and fish through a large tract of land covering the Midwestern US and Southern Ontario. The Haudenosaunee have repeatedly and specifically attempted to secure this tract in the face of widespread squatting since the 1820s, so for around 200 years. And after 200 years, they still face encroachments on their lands. Here we also see a conflict between elected band councils and the hereditary leadership. The elected council has signed an agreement with the developer for the project and supports the housing development, while the traditional leadership is opposed and supports the reclamation movement. The community is in fact divided along class lines. The Six Nations elected council has, has actually stated that according to Ontario court decisions, there was no requirement for a private entity like a developer to accommodate Six Nations for developing lands that were taken illegally in the 1800s. It should be noted that the council did actually sign an agreement with Foxgate that ended up transferring 17 hectares of land and $352,000 to the Six Nations for accommodation. However, Foxgate never consulted the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Chiefs Council, which is the traditional government, before commencing the project. The Confederacy Chiefs Council has supported the 1492 land back and deems the property to be in a red zone of land over which it claims title. So there is some similarity here with the uh, the situation of the Wet'suwet'en. Even though the council has signed an agreement with the developer, it is interesting to note that the Six Nations elected council has an ongoing court case filed in 1995 against Ottawa and Ontario over lost lands. It is scheduled to go to trial in 2022, almost 30 years after it was originally filed. But what has happened now? The courts have granted a permanent injunction against the reclamation camp, effectively denying the traditional leadership's claim to the land, and the police have already moved in and attacked, so now we have another standoff. The question of unceded territory mainly pertains to British Columbia, where land was taken from Indigenous peoples without any treaties being signed, but this question does exist in other parts of the country as well, such as New Brunswick. Uh, previously I previously mentioned the Royal Proclamation of 1763, uh, which formally recognized that all lands would be considered Indigenous lands until ceded by treaty. The Indigenous peoples of New Brunswick did not surrender their land through treaties. Peace and friendship treaties were signed in 1760 and 1761 in the Maritimes, but the, but the Mi'kmaq and the Mali state, for example, did not surrender rights or title to lands or resources in these treaties. We also had this case involving the LC. Elsie Bogtog First Nation in New Brunswick, which is again similar to the, to the situation with the Wet'suwet'en. 
Following intense protests in 2013 by members of the First Nation against the fracking of shale gas on traditional unceded territory, in 2016, the First Nation government filed a land claim on behalf of all Mi'kmaq claiming people claiming title to around one-third of the province. We also have this situation that's arisen in Nova Scotia with, with the lobster fishery. A massive conflict erupted around this question with, with Indigenous fishermen being subject to harassment, violence, vandalism. The boat of one fisherman was set on fire. The lobster catch, Their lobster catches were stolen or destroyed. And eventually a lobster pound that does business with Indigenous fishermen was set on fire. Now what's, all behind, what's behind all this? It's classic divide and rule. Can't go into too much detail, but we have published a really good article on this on our website if, if people are interested. The Sebegne, I have difficulty pronouncing this word, the Sebegnegatic First Nation has a right to a moderate livelihood fishery. This was established by the Supreme Court in 1999. We support this right, of course, but the whole thing is a scandal anyway. Why should Indigenous people be limited to a moderate livelihood? Indigenous people should have all their needs fully met, not just moderately met. Naturally, this right to a moderate livelihood has not been upheld by the Canadian state. They've left this in a legal gray area, which leaves the door open to conflict between Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishermen. Now, the lobster fishery in Nova Scotia has been hit really hard during the pandemic. Prices have, have collapsed, and, and this has really hit the commercial fishermen really hard. Lobster is also a finite and controlled resource, and so this has pushed a layer of non-Indigenous fishermen to go after the indi Indigenous lobster fishers. So while the non-Indigenous commercial fishermen are in a conflict with Indigenous fishermen over fishing rights in a very small area, they're basically fighting over crumbs, a giant corporation, Clearwater Seafoods, has a monopoly over the largest fishing areas. And the actions of this giant monopoly are driving the small fishermen into the ground. Now, some on the left have been trying to portray this as a conflict between settler fishermen versus the Indigenous fishermen. But this identity politics approach would be directly harmful to the struggle if it were to be adopted on a, on a widespread layer level. Portraying non-Indigenous fishermen as settlers against the Indigenous fishermen, in fact, directly plays into the hands of the racists. In reality, while denouncing racism, the Indigenous fishermen are trying not to make this a conflict against the non-Indigenous fishermen. The chief, for example, said, our issue is not with the commercial fishermen. We have an issue with the levels of government that are not upholding our rights. And it's the same thing with the non-Indigenous fishermen. One of them was quoted in the press as saying, our issue is not with Indigenous people, it is with the government. Unfortunately, this, this didn't actually stop the conflict and didn't stop things from, from getting quite violent. But it does show that the federal governments and the big corporations are the real enemy against which the workers should be uniting, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Rather than fighting each other, the Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishermen should be joining together and fighting against the corporation and the government, their common enemies. We should be highlighting what unites the Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishermen in order to achieve a united struggle, not emphasizing what divides us. In any case, back, back to the question of unceded land. Over the centuries since the Royal Proclamation, the government of BC did in fact not sign or negotiate many treaties, uh, with the result being that much of the, of the land in the province is actually not covered by treaty. This means that according to Canadian law, much of the traditional Indigenous territory in British Columbia was unceded as it was never sold, surrendered, or lost in a war. The ruling class was really worried about the adoption of UNDRIP by the BC government because almost the entire province is actually unceded land. This has also been recognized uh, partially in the Supreme Court case, uh, Del Maguch versus the British Columbia uh, government, which took place in the late 1990s and was launched in part by the Wet'suwet'en. 
The wet sweat and title was established in this case, but it was never legally clarified, which again is similar to this, this, this question of the moderate livelihood of the fishermen in Nova Scotia. It's left in a legal gray area precisely to create conflict. Some have argued that if the Wet'suwet'en were to go back to court, they would have a strong claim to title over their territories. And this is undoubtedly true. However, recent history has also clearly demonstrated that the courts and the law cannot be relied upon by Indigenous peoples. The conflict between the interests and profits of the ruling class on one hand and the rights of Indigenous people on the other will never be resolved through bourgeois law. As one First Nation chief said last year, you cannot dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. Now, last year, when the RCMP invaded wet sweat and lands, there, was, there wasn't too much of a, of a solidarity response. But earlier this year, to yet another invasion of their lands, there, there was quite a different response. There were solidarity demonstrations and rallies around the country. The provincial legislature was blocked and blockaded in Victoria, and ports were shut down in Vancouver, for example. There were roadblocks and railway blockades across the country, which eventually shut down passenger and freight rail in central and eastern Canada. This movement in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en was one of the most significant national movements of protest we've seen in some time, and it had the ruling class and governments absolutely terrified. This reflects in general the intensification of the class struggle, the polarization of society, and the fact that the whole concept of reconciliation is dead in the water. Look at the response of the right wing of the Conservative Party, for example, <clears throat> characterizing the Wet'suwet'en opposition to pipelines and the various solidarity actions as terrorism. Uh, in fact, I recently wrote an article about this, which can also be found on our website. But uh, CSIS and RCMP have been spying on political demonstrations across the country for, for, for the past decade, at least, openly. But specifically, they consider Indigenous movements as threats to national security. Protests and blockades against pipelines and in support of Indigenous rights or in support of striking workers are obviously not threats to national security. But protest blockades and solid picket lines are, however, threats to the interests of the ruling class. The ruling class sees any threats to its interests as a threat to national security because it sees them as threats to its ability to rule, to enforce economic policy in its interest, and to exploit the working class without opposition. This is why various Indigenous movements are considered threats to national security. This is also why the Alberta government has banned illegal protests of infrastructure and essentially banned picket lines, effectively taking away the right to strike. But what the situation with the Wet'suwet'en showed was that the entire concept of reconciliation under capitalism is a total sham, and it always was. When the RCMP invaded Wet'suwet'en lands earlier this year, they literally had to saw through and break down a large barricade with the word reconciliation painted across in huge letters. The RCMP literally sawed it in half as they broke through to arrest the land defenders. The symbolism of this act is very powerful and frankly speaks for itself. Why should oppressed and subjugated peoples have to seek reconciliation with their oppressors in the first place? The whole idea is nonsense. Besides, how can we seriously talk of reconciliation when indigenous peoples are still fighting for basic human rights, for recognition of title, for the right to free prior and informed consent, and still fighting to get clean water on a reserve. The oppression and subjugation of Indigenous peoples is written into the very fabric of the nation. It's written right into the Constitution. The entire legal and political setup of the country is built on this oppression and designed to maintain it. That is why time and time again we see Indigenous people enter a just struggle to fight for their rights and, and then they run into the roadblocks of the law, the courts, the Constitution, the police, and so on. As long as capitalism continues to exist here, Indigenous people will never be free. 
The only solution is to overthrow the entire rotten structure of Canadian Confederation, the bourgeois state, and their laws. Marxists fight against all reforms of all forms of oppression in the here and now, including the fight for reforms that would alleviate oppression and the impacts of hundreds of years of colonization. But what is the most effective way to accomplish this? Strikes, mass demonstrations, occupations, these are all the kinds of tactics that can wrest concessions from the ruling class. But any movement in solid, you know, and, and sorry, the movement in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en achieved more in, more in a few days than years of negotiation and reconciliation. The struggle for these concessions must be part and parcel of the broader struggle for socialist revolution. What is really needed going forward is mass collective struggle that includes the entire working class and all oppressed peoples. The Canadian ruling class and their state have been terrified for years at the prospect of an indigenous insurgency. They're specifically worried about convergence or what they call convergence, what we would call solidarity and class unity. They're worried that these movements could all unite into one big struggle. But from our perspective, convergence and insurgency are precisely what are needed. We need the convergence of all the oppressed peoples and the exploited. For example, the entire working class of Quebec, Canada, and the rest of North America. We must stand and fight as a class for an end to centuries of capitalist oppression and the exploitation of indigenous peoples. And again, we saw the potential for this earlier this year with the fantastic movement in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. The ruling class has an explicit interest in using the state and the law against both the working class and indigenous struggle. The class struggle is intensifying and the bourgeoisie are preparing to use the heavy hand of the state to crush any resistance. They're sharpening their weapons and we also have to be prepared for the battles to come. We have the same enemy, an enemy that has the entire power of the state at its disposal. And our greatest weapon is solidarity. An injury to one is an injury to all. We must all come together in common struggle anytime indigenous rights are under attack, anytime workers' rights are under attack, and anytime the right to protest or form a picket line are under attack. The trade unions can and should be playing a leading role in united struggle. Mass solidarity demonstrations should be organized, picket lines bolstered where needed. On the basis of a united struggle, we could fight against the attacks on the right to protest and strike in Alberta. We could fight in defense of the Haudenosaunee land defenders and, and, and defend the stolen land from developers. And we could fight in defense of the rights of the Mi'kmaq in, in Nova Scotia. But taking on the big corporations and the state we're trampling on indigenous rights while simultaneously exploiting the workers and reaping billions in profits requires a united struggle of indigenous and non-indigenous workers. Through such united struggles, workers of all backgrounds learn and practice that they can achieve more by fighting together. The Marxists place primacy on the class struggle because it is the sole means by which the capitalist system and the Canadian state can be defeated. It is through the class struggle, through the overthrow of capitalist property relations and the creation of new socialist relations that the legacy of colonialism and racism can be tackled. The capitalist mode of production is based at its core on the extraction of surplus value from the workers by the owners and the means of production, the capitalists. This is the root of profit and this is the capitalist primary aim. Discrimination, oppression and colonial subjugation play a significant role in maintaining the capitalist system. But it's the, it's the economic of reality of exploitation that puts the workers in a unique position to bring the entire system down. Workers are the ones who produce all the wealth in society and can seize the means of production to put them to work in the interest of the majority. It is precisely by freeing up all the wealth in society that the challenges and injustices faced by Indigenous communities can be meaningfully addressed. 
as they, as you know, we could bear, basically guarantee the funds and the resources needed to implement programs and services, and Indigenous people could democratically decide how to go about doing so without any inside imposition. A workers' government would not adopt the hypocritical mantra of reconciliation, and we wouldn't expect it from Indigenous peoples either. Rather, a socialist revolution would be interested in the genuine liberation of Indigenous peoples. A government of working people would not be interested in imposing any sort of solution to the question of Indigenous liberation, but would rather stand together shoulder to shoulder in solidarity with Indigenous peoples in their struggle for liberation, providing any and all assistance we can. A socialist government would commit to resolving all the land titles immediately, all the, all the land title claims immediately, and, and the, to providing compensation for any and all lands occupied, stolen, or confiscated by the bourgeoisie and their state. Karl Marx once said, a nation cannot be free and at the same time continue to oppress other nations. The reality is that there will never be any real solution to the question of Indigenous rights and title to the national question in Quebec or the exploitation of the working class within Canadian Confederation. The working class of North America will never be free so long as the Indigenous peoples of North America continue to be oppressed and subjugated. Under capitalism, the question of Indigenous rights is entirely subservient to the interests of the ruling class. The rights of Indigenous people are sacrificed time and time again in order to secure the profits of the capitalists. Under socialism, with a democratically planned economy, under workers' control, production would be based on need and not profit. And on this basis, we could immediately begin to work in harmony to resolve the problems of Indigenous rights, title, and autonomy, and bring an end to centuries of exploitation, oppression, and colonial subjugation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.